Will you pray with me? Lord, apart from you, our lives have no meaning. Apart from you, they have no purpose. Apart from you, they have no everlasting hope or joy. And so, Lord, we include you. We recognize you. We bow before you. We worship you. We acknowledge you. We love you. We thank you that you have given not only meaning to our life, but you have given us life. You have given us every breath. And we give you the glory and the honor and thank you that you're calling us to live for you and to live with you for all eternity in a perfect place. We ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to better understand your plans for the future and the joy there will be, Lord, for serving you. We ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to me words that are true and honor Christ and are faithful to your word, and it would stir our hearts to obedience. We ask, Lord, for those who are listening online or those who are away from us, that you'd minister to them as well, protecting our military who are serving overseas, bring them back safely to us. For families that are separated geographically, may you bless them during times of difficulty. For students who have gone back to school, those who are ill and away from us, for all of those, Lord, we pray for them and ask you to minister to them. We thank you for those who are serving from our church as missionaries and ask, Lord, that you'd speak to them and through them as well. And we ask all these things in the name above every other name, the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, and, and they have a copy of the sermon outline, and if you didn't get one, um, I'd encourage you to take one, if, even if you're not planning to write on it. Uh, the sermon has a lot of details on it. It might be helpful for you to, to have that um, in front of you. So if you want one as they go by, just kind of flag them down or raise your hand or something, and they'll go ahead and hand you an outline. We've been studying the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation can be complicated, it can be difficult, it has a lot of details, and, and my goal, my desire is to make it simple enough that it's understandable for us and to make it life-changing. So hopefully we'll accomplish that today as we go through the book and study Revelation chapter 6. When I was six or, or seven years old, I first started riding horses. My parents sent my three older sisters and myself to horseback riding lessons, and because we lived on the East Coast in Rhode Island in New England, the style we learned was the English style of riding, where you have a saddle that doesn't have one of those horn thingies that you hold on to, you know, and you hold on with your knees and you post up and down, you know, and started riding like this in six or seven. Well, then I turned eight, and my dad got orders to the West Coast, to Long Beach, California, and so my dad um, got our 1957 Dodge station wagon, green and white, and piled six members of the family there. That's four kids, my mom and dad, and then also our boxer dog, Ginger, and then we had a Siamese cat that had to fit in there. And, of course, we had all our belongings and our house plants, so dad hooked up the VW Bug behind the station wagon to tow it, and it was filled with house plants and things like that. And we're driving across country, and we're camping and visiting national parks along the way. And one of the things we got to do in the national parks was horseback riding whenever we could. And so I remember riding horses, but I weighed all of about 50 or 60 pounds, and horses never really took me very seriously, you know. Well, I remember one incident, and I don't remember exactly where it happened, but I remember the incident where I'm on this horse, and 
it found me to be a nuisance. And so this horse literally reared up on its hind legs with its feet up in the air like this, you know, and trying to get me to fall off the back. Well, fortunately, it was one of those Western saddles, and I held on to the little horn thingy, you know, for my dear life, and I didn't come off. And the horse came back down, and the horse still wanted to get rid of me, and it wasn't done with its horse tricks. So the next thing it did, it ran straight for a tree with low-hanging branches. And what the horse couldn't do on its own, it accomplished with a tree. <laughs> and I went flying off the horse. I have not done much horseback riding since that day. Well, today, as we continue in our study in the book of Revelation, we come to that section with the infamous, frightening four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they are frightening, and the horses are frightening, and we're going to be looking at their frightening details here in a moment. But before we find out who these four cowboys are, I want to set the stage. I want to remind you that the book of Revelation is the climax of all Scripture. It is the last written revelation that God has given to humanity. And it reveals Jesus not as in the Gospels as a person of humility who is sacrificed for our sins, but the book of Revelation reveals Jesus as King, King of kings, Lord of lords, in His majesty. And in the Gospels, Jesus is subject to human government. He is placed on a cross, and he is killed. But when we come to the book of Revelation, Jesus subjects all human government under himself, and he is placed on the throne in heaven, and he judges all of mankind and determines if they get eternal life or eternal damnation. And the climax of the book of Revelation is not just the climax of the whole Bible. It's the climax of all human history. It's the return of Jesus Christ to reign forever on a perfect earth with you and me as co-heirs with him. So if you ignore the book of Revelation, to a large degree, you're actually ignoring Jesus Christ. And we do not want to ignore the book, nor do we want to ignore him. We're told in the very first verse in Revelation chapter 1-1 that this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of Jesus. It's a revelation from him. It's a revelation about him. So to ignore it is to ignore Jesus, and we don't want to do that. I remind you that when the Bible was written, 20% of it was prophecy at the time. It was unfulfilled prophecy. 20% of it, one-fifth of it. Now, much of that has already been fulfilled, and there were prophecies about Christ's first coming, and they have been literally fulfilled. And so, if those prophecies of His first coming have been literally fulfilled, we should expect that the prophecies concerning His second coming also will be literally fulfilled. Which brings us to a very important factor when it comes to understanding the book of Revelation. And if you'll look at your notes there, it says an overview. How you begin will greatly determine what you conclude. How you begin will greatly determine what you conclude. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, there are a couple approaches to the book. One approach is to see it as an allegorical story kind of like John, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. 
They aren't real events, but they contain some symbolism that teaches us some spiritual truths. And so some people approach the book of Revelation that way, like it's just an allegory, just a story. Another way to approach it is what's called the normal, plain, literal interpretation. To approach it as if it contains actual, literal, future events described to you in imagery, of course, but the imagery is describing true, real, literal future happenings. And that's a second approach you can have. And depending on how you start, how you begin, that will determine what you conclude about the book. Well, the early church for the first 300 years, first, second, third centuries, approached the book of Revelation as if it contained literal events for the future given to us in imagery. But then something happened. The Greek philosophers of the day, the pagan philosophers, tried to allegorize the Bible to fit with their philosophy. And that started influencing people in the church. And there was a man by the name of St. Augustine, or Augustine, some people pronounce his name, in the 4th century, who brought this allegorical method to the church and interpreted the book of Revelation as just an allegory, as the battle between good and evil. And even wrote a book that you can have today, and it sat on my shelf for 40 years. I've never read it. I gave it away. But it's called The City of God. And that book, allegorizing the book of Revelation as just a story between good and evil, between God and Satan, has influenced the church to this day, and it's created a whole group of people who don't believe that the book of Revelation is describing little events. They often call themselves amillennialists. Awe in Greek means no, and millennium in Latin means a thousand years, so it means they don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth as described in the book of Revelation six times in chapter 20, and that's one group. But the other group, and the way that I've been trained, is to look at the book of Revelation as describing real events, to interpret literally. Yes, there are figures of speech, but they represent true people, true events. And that's the view held by A.B. Simpson, who founded our denomination. It's the view of A.W. Tozer, you might know his name, who is the most famous pastor, I think, in our denomination, and it's the view of our denomination in our, in our doctrinal statement. So what I'm going to share with you is, is nothing controversial here. It's what we believe, and how you begin will greatly determine what you conclude. Which brings us to a second thing on your outline there. How are we going to approach it? Well, our approach will be the plain literal, not the allegorical approach. The plain literal, not the allegorical approach. And some people who have used the allegorical approach have seen the Roman emperor Nero in the book of Revelation and the persecution during the, the first, second, and third centuries of the church. Some people have seen the French Revolution in there and Napoleon in there and a lot of different things. And you can imagine if you allegorize the book, you can come up with more interpretations than there are people because it just depends on the person's imagination on what these things mean. So we're going to approach it like there are literal events and that we can understand this in a plain literal method. And if you approach Revelation, seeing it literally, you come up with a timeline of end-time events. 
If you approach it allegorically, there's no timeline. Well, would you like to see a proposed timeline based on the book of Revelation if you believe that it describes literal events? Please say yes or the sermon kind of ends at this point. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so number three on your outline, we're going to put it on the screen there as well so you have it in front of us and in front of you. So this is a timeline of future events. Is everyone agreed on this? No, but this is generally what is held by people who look at the book of Revelation as literal. And so this is a timeline. You'll see the cross there. That, of course, represents Jesus Christ, his tomb. After he died, he, he ascended up into heaven, and that's that first arrow, Jesus went to heaven. Well, after he went to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit and, down to the earth, and the church was birthed. And so that, that line where you have a little jagged thing, that's what we call the church age, the church age. And look at that. I don't even have to touch the clicker and it happens, I tell you. It's church age. And that little wave-looking thing is not because I like to surf, but it's because we don't really know how long that period of time is. But you live in that time. You live in the church age. You're part of the church. You are part of the bride of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is going to come and rescue his bride before a lot of bad things happen on the earth. And that's called the rapture, and you'll see that little U-turn. That's Jesus coming down from heaven, the the third heaven where he resides, to what we call the heavens, the clouds, and meeting his church in the air. We get raptured. We get caught up to be with Jesus. And that's talked about in John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, that we go to meet him in the air. He pulls us out. Why? Because we have been obedient children, and we get rewarded. But he has some disobedient children who need to be punished to get their attention. And you have children. And when they are obedient, you reward them. When they're disobedient, you have to get their attention. And so there might be some discipline. And so this period of discipline on the earth lasts for seven years. It's called the tribulation period. It lasts seven years. And the purpose of it is to get the attention of Christ's disobedient children, the nation of Israel. And the book of Daniel goes into this quite specifically in great detail, especially in chapter 9, that he says God isn't finished with the nation of Israel. There's a seven-year period in the nation of Israel that has not been accomplished yet. And that's the tribulation period. And during this time, God pours his wrath on the earth. All kinds of things happen, and we're going to be talking about many of them this morning. But you have to remember the purpose of that is to get the attention of the Jewish people who rejected Jesus at his first coming. Well, at the end of the tribulation, the Jewish people get it. They go, ha, Jesus is the Messiah. And they call him back, and then we have what's called the second coming of Christ. And Christ comes, and at his second coming, he comes to this earth, which has been much improved but not yet perfected, and he reigns on the earth a thousand years as the Jewish Messiah with Jerusalem as their capital. He fulfills the promises he made to Abraham, the father of the Jews, to give him land and seed. He fulfills the promises he made to King David, the Davidic covenant, that you will have one of your heirs to sit on the Jewish throne forever. He fulfills all those promises because God always keeps his promises. And then he brings us with him, by the way. You're up in heaven there. You get like a resurrected body and you come back and you reign with Christ on earth and it's the best. And then that last circle is the eternal state. After the judgment, we all enter an eternal state where he makes a new earth and new heavens and we live with him forever. 
Well, Revelation chapter 6 to 19, the major portion of the book of Revelation, is all about that seven-year tribulation period. It's about that period where God is getting the attention of the nation of Israel, so they'll call back the Messiah. Now turn with me to chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1 is where we pick it up this morning with that background. And I remind you that chapter 6 now is going to be describing this period of time of the tribulation, these seven years. The bride has been taken out. You're the bride. You're, you're with the groom in heaven, but they're disobedient children on earth. And John says, I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals. I remind you that we saw last week Jesus is the lamb, a lamb that was sacrificed. And he grabs a scroll with seven seals out of the Father's hand. Well, the document that had seven seals in John's day was a will, had seven seals. And so if we kind of see this as a will, Jesus has died. And you don't open a will until the person dies. But Jesus has died, but he comes back to life so he can open sort of his own will, his own future. So he opens up the will, and he starts breaking the seals, and he tells us what's in the scroll. And the scroll is a record of end-time events, very specifically the tribulation. And Jesus breaks one of the seven seals on the scroll, and John says, I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. Now, when you hear the word thunder, or when you hear thunder, you know a storm is approaching. And so one of these four living creatures, those creatures look face of an animal or a man with lots of wings and eyes around the throne, says, come, not to John, but to the first horseman of the apocalypse. He says, come. And this is the first of seven seals, and in this chapter, six of the seven seals are going to be broken, and the first four seals, when broken, release the horsemen of the apocalypse. And so, the living creature says, come, and John looks, verse 2, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. If you look at your notes there under the word seals, the first seal is broken, and that reveals the rider on the white horse, the white horse. And this is the future world leader. The future world leader is being released. And we call him the Antichrist. He goes by many names in Scripture, but you know him probably the best as the Antichrist. Now, the true Christ, Jesus also comes riding on a white horse, but he comes at the end of the tribulation at the second coming. The false Christ comes on a white horse at the beginning of the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, the true Christ riding on a white horse wears a crown, but it's a Greek word for diadem, which is the royal crown, the crown of authority and rulership. The false Christ, the Antichrist, comes at the beginning of the tribulation wearing a crown, but it's the crown Stephanos, and Stephanos is just that perishable crown of a victor. And when the Antichrist comes, he is a world ruler, and he comes like a conqueror, and he first conquers by bringing peace, but then he'll bring war. And that's why he's carrying a bow, that that's the symbol of a battle. Now, back in the book of Daniel... Daniel is told 
that this world ruler would come and he would start this seven-year period by signing a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. That's going to happen. There will be peace on earth, and this world ruler will sign a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, and that begins the seven years. And it starts off very peaceful. There's world peace. Everybody loves this world ruler. But in the middle of the peace, halfway through the seven years, he breaks the treaty with Israel. And he enters the Jewish temple. And you go, well, there's no Jewish temple today. There isn't yet. There will be. And he enters the Jewish temple, and he sets himself up as God to be worshipped in the Jewish temple. Do you remember the very first sin that entered the universe described in Isaiah 14? It was performed by an angel. We call him Lucifer or Satan. He wanted to be on God's throne. He wanted to be worshipped as God. And in the end times, he will take this world ruler, and this world ruler will be worshipped as God. And Satan will feel like he has accomplished his purpose. In Matthew 24, Jesus himself talks about this event, and he calls it the abomination of desolation when this world ruler takes over the Jewish temple and sets himself up as God. It's also talked about in 2 Thessalonians by the Apostle Paul. Let me read to you what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 4. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Paul writing says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. That's the rapture that you see on the chart, the chart there that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as from us. Apparently, someone has sent a letter, signed it the Apostle Paul, but it wasn't from Paul. And don't be disturbed by this to the effect the day of the Lord has come. When you see the word day of the Lord in the Scripture, it's referring to the tribulation. And some of the people in the church got a letter that said, hey, guess what? You missed the rapture. (laughs) You're going through the tribulation. They're going, oh, no. And Paul goes, don't be disturbed. That's not true. The bride is taken out at the rapture before the day of the Lord, before the tribulation. He says, let no one in any way deceive you. For the tribulation will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed. He's also called the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Now listen to this. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God. That's a Jewish temple displaying himself as being God. A true event authenticated by the Apostle Paul, described by Jesus himself in Matthew 24, talked about by Daniel the prophet in Daniel 9, reconfirmed by John in the book of Revelation. The whole scriptures are saying the same thing for centuries, and they're predicting the coming of this world ruler who will start by making peace, he'll break the peace, and he'll claim to be God and set up his throne in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. That's the first seal that is broken. It reveals the first part of the tribulation, how it gets started. Well, there's a second seal, verse 3, back in Revelation 6. And when 
Jesus broke the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, come. He's calling forth the next horse. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men should slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. The second seal reveals the rider on the red horse. The second rider of the apocalypse, the red horse. And here is where the wars are unleashed. Wars are unleashed. We start off with peace, and it moves into war. And the Apostle Paul describes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the rapture. Then we move into the tribulation period, the day of the Lord in verse 2. For you know yourselves full well that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety. So there will be peace on earth because the world ruler has declared peace with Israel. But then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. That is the second rider of the apocalypse, the red horse. The wars are unleashed. And then back in Revelation chapter 6, it tells us what's going to happen next after the world ruler has come, after wars have come. It gets worse. Chapter 6, verse 5. And when Jesus broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, he calls forth the third horse. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, a three-quarters of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The third seal is the rider on the black horse, the black horse, and those are famines, and famines on earth are unleashed. They're a product of war, of course, and a denarius was a day's wage, and he's saying it will take a whole day's wage to buy a quart of wheat, and a quart of wheat was just enough to provide one good meal. But if you wanted the cheaper grain, you could buy barley, three quarts of barley, and that would provide three meals. But the point is, it would take an entire day's wage to feed one person. And so if you're the wage earner, you can feed yourself, but you can't feed your family, and you have no money left. Wow. And then there's the fourth seal. After this famine hits the earth during this seven-year period, Verse 7, and when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, he's calling forth the fourth horse. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, or a sickly pale horse, it can be translated. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Death takes your body. Hades takes your soul. And authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. And so the fourth seal unleashes the sickly pale horse. The sickly pale horse, this is death of one quarter of the world. One quarter of the world. If the world at that time has eight billion people like it does now, one quarter of the world would be two billion people who die. That's equivalent to the populations now of Europe, 
North America, South America, and Oceania, where we live, combined, dead through these things. All wiped out through wars, famines, pestilences, and wild beasts. Well, the four horsemen of the apocalypse have been released. There's something to be afraid of, but there's more. There are seven seals. Those are only the first four. So let's look at verse 9. And when Jesus broke the fifth seal of the scroll, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. As John is having these visions, his vision changes from seeing what's going down on earth to seeing what's going on in heaven at the same time during the seven-year tribulation. And what he sees, he sees countless of martyrs, people who are going to be killed during the tribulation because they have come to know Jesus Christ and live for him. When the tribulation starts, nobody's a believer. The believers have all been taken out. But during the tribulation, as all these bad things happen, people turn to Jesus Christ. And they turn to Christ by the myriads and myriads, we're told in chapter 7. And they, when they turn to Christ, of course, are killed by the Antichrist and those who serve him, and they are martyred, and they are in heaven. And John sees these martyrs in heaven, and he sees them not really cowering under the altar, but the altar was a place where you poured out the blood of the sacrifice, and so they're seen at the base of the altar. They have poured out their blood. Now, sometimes people say, well, when you get to heaven, you won't remember anything bad that happened on earth. Well, getting martyred is pretty bad, and these people remember it. You will remember the bad things of your life but they won't cause you pain. They won't cause you sorrow. They won't bring tears to your eyes, we're told in the book of Revelation later. But if you don't remember how bad you were or how bad your life was, you won't be you if you don't have your memories. And when you see Jesus and you see the nail scars in his hands and his feet, if you don't remember he got them because of what you did wrong, you're going to look at him and go, hey, how'd you get that? what's that from? We will be in heaven thanking Jesus and worshiping him for forgiving our sins for all eternity. There won't be pain with our sin. There won't be sorrow with our sin. There will be gratefulness to the Lord Jesus Christ for all he's done for us. And these martyrs remember the worst thing that ever happened to them. But they're going to give the Lord Jesus their praise. So the fifth seal is a vision of the tribulation martyrs. The tribulation martyrs. And then we come to the sixth seal that we'll cover today, the last one that we'll cover, and that is in verse 12. And I looked when Jesus broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, probably referring to being dark red. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, Meteors, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island, including Oahu, removed out of their places. 
The sixth seal, I define it this way, the sky is falling. The sky is falling, literally. The sun and moon darkened, the stars, meteors fallen. That gets your attention. I'd like to show you a picture of the largest meteorite that we know that has struck the USA. And this meteorite was found in Willamette um, in Oregon. A man found it on private property and tried to steal it, but it weighs 34,000 pounds, so they caught him before he got it moved. <laughs> 34,000 pounds. That's equivalent to 17 Volkswagen Beetles. But the largest meteorite ever to hit the earth that we know about, that we have seen, is in Namibia. And I'd like to show you the next slide. That meteorite is called the Huba. And it's estimated to weigh 132,000 pounds. 132,000 pounds. Uh, for those who are good at math, that's 66 Volkswagen Beetles. During the tribulation at the end, Volkswagen Beetles will be falling from the sky. <laughs> no, but meteors. The sky is falling, getting people's attention. Look how they react. Verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And notice who they cry out to. They cry out to creation, not to the creator. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, if you're like me, you may be wondering, why? Why is Jesus so mad? Why is Jesus seemingly so, can we say it, mean to people on earth? I mean, We've only looked at six seals. There's a seventh seal, and the seventh seal opens up to seven trumpet judgments. <clears throat> and the seventh trumpet, you think it's all over, opens up to seven bowls of plagues. And just for good measure, there's like three woes thrown in there. It's going to get worse. Why would God do such a thing? I think that's a fair question. We need to remember that sin always has consequences. Every sin has a consequence. You cannot sin without a consequence. Now, fortunately, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus took the hit. He said, I will pay the consequences for your sin, but every sin you commit, every sin I commit has a consequence, and Jesus has paid for those consequences. But if we reject the Lamb who was sacrificed for our sins... We pay the consequences ourselves. When you reject God's kindness, you experience His wrath. Paul tells us that in Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? And forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation to the righteous judgment of God. Everyone gets to choose. And if you reject his kindness, you get his wrath. But his wrath is an act of mercy. 
like a parent disciplining a child. If the child doesn't respond to the reward, you have to discipline them. And God pours out His discipline to get the attention of His disobedient children, specifically the nation of Israel. And it works. Which brings us to the purpose, the main purpose of this horrible seven years. The Lamb's wrath, look into your notes there, leads to Israel's repentance, and Israel's repentance leads to Christ's return. The Lamb's wrath leads to Israel's repentance, and Israel's repentance leads to Christ's return. The 8th century B.C. Jewish prophet Hosea predicts this. In fact, he records Jesus predicting it. Before Jesus was born, of course, he's, he's always existed as God. And in the book of Hosea, Jesus himself is predicting this. If you have trouble finding it quickly, just listen as I read Hosea 5.15. Jesus speaking through the prophet in the 8th century B.C. He says, I will go away and return to my place, which means I'll go back to heaven after being on earth. Until they, the nation of Israel, acknowledge their guilt, the guilt of rejecting him, and seek my face. In their affliction, that's the tribulation, they will earnestly seek me. It's predicted that the nation of Israel will repent of their sin and call Jesus back. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 23. In Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus was on earth, he says it again. And in Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39, Jesus at his first coming is coming to the Jews. It's his triumphal entry. He's about to enter Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I want her to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are unwilling. You are disobedient chicks, (laughs) disobedient children. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate for I say to you, listen to this prophecy, from now on, from his first coming, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, and then he quotes the Old Testament, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, Israel won't see me until they call me back and say, blessed is Jesus. The Lamb's wrath leads to Israel's repentance, and Israel's repentance leads to Christ's return and His second coming. And that is being what is being revealed to us about Jesus in chapter 6. That when you reject His kindness, He will use His wrath because He's merciful and wants to save you. So choose wisely. Will you pray with me? I'd like to ask you to bow your heads. So you can have a private moment. Have you made the choice to accept Christ's kindness and ask Him to come into your life and forgive your sins? He died for your sins. He took the hit for your sins. He rose from the grave. He's conquered death. He offers you eternal life, complete forgiveness. He just says, you must choose. Do you choose me? If you're here and you've never chosen Jesus, you can just tell him right now in your heart, Lord, I choose you. Please save me. And he will. Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return. And we pray that in the meantime, we might be obedient to your word and might lead many 
to a saving knowledge of you. We love you, Lord. Amen. I'm going to conclude our, our, our service um, with the closing verses in the, in the letter to Jude. Just find this so appropriate for, for our morning together and what we just learned, what we studied. This is Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you soon. God bless you all.